Medic 43, District 1, Engine 51, Response, Cardiac Arrest. Hello, everybody. Welcome again to another edition of the MCHD Paramedic Podcast. This is Dr. Casey Patrick, and if you hear the background noise, you'll know that we're live at Texas EMS Conference 2021. So forgive us for the noise in exchange for having some super special guests uh, from this collection of episodes. And joining us now, along with our regulars, Medical Director Rob Dixon and our Chief of Quality, Kevin Crocker from MCHD, we also have uh, EMS Medical Director from Williamson County and Marble Falls, uh, Dr. Jeff Jarvis. Thanks for joining us, Jeff. Casey, thanks so much for having me, man. And we are going to hit on a topic that we actually just discussed pretty recently here on the podcast, one that uh, Dr. Jarvis has written about, uh, one that we all here at the table feel really strongly is going to become the norm within EMS, and that's why we're talking more about it, and that is droperidol and droperidol use in the pre-hospital setting. So not to rehash a lot of uh, our prior episode or uh, some of the things that Dr. Jarvis has already written about, and we'll link those in the show notes, but Jeff, give the listeners a two-minute two overview, sort of droperidol, your Wilco protocol and sort of how you guys approach it there. You bet. So first I want to say our experience with the droperidol is a little bit interrupted. So when I took over the system in 2011, we implemented droperidol and we did it for agitation and for migraines, started using it for migraines in 2014. And then we had to stop for reasons that I'm sure y'all have hit on before the, the black box and we just couldn't get it. So we got it back in May of this year, and our protocol is basically, um, there are three reasons we give it. We give it for agitation, and we break that down into um, what we call resistant, which would be a RAS score of two to three, or violent agitation, which is a RAS of four. Um, We also use it for nausea and vomiting, and we use it for headaches. So those are where we use it, when we use it, um, and I'm, I will just tell you, I am extraordinarily biased about this discussion because I love that drug. Um, I, you know, I walk into a room, I see somebody, I'm like one of those rare emergency physicians that sees headache pop up the board and I'm like, oh yeah, I'll go see that person because it's an opportunity to give droperidol. So similar, similar with a couple differences from our droperidol indications uh, at MCHD, we also are using it for nausea and vomiting and uh, agitation as well, undifferentiated agitated patients. Uh, No headache indication for uh, MCHD listeners out there as of now, but we'll definitely be watching uh, Jeff's data closely and adding that um, as we see fit. So yeah, one of my pet peeves is about headache management and particularly the use of opioids and why thou shalt not use opioids. So uh, one of my paramedics really got interested in this and he forced me to do a paper with ESO about headache management and great shock. What we found is that we very rarely assess the pain in patients with headaches. We more rarely treat it. And when we do, we treat it inappropriately with opioids. So the next paper we're doing is, well, does implementation of a no opioids, here's what you should do for them, improve the treatment of patients with headaches and droperidol is a big part of that along with metoclopramide so we're going to be looking at that that's the analysis that I'm doing right now so that's my little uh, my little plug hopefully y'all will consider that um, and maybe we can do something for these folks who are suffering and even in the even in the uh, 
undifferentiated agitation spectrum. Mm. That's where, really where there's a lot of spots where droperidol, not only is it new, not new in the, in the, <laughs> in the new sense, but definitely uh, new pre-hospitally and EMS-wise, um, it also fills a gap. It fills a gap where there's uh, missing pharmacologic yeah. Uh, tools, so yep. we really feel like that it it specifically targets those mental health patients and the mental health agitation type emergencies. So you talked about how long your your protocol has been mm-hmm. in place with the gap. What data can you share from from Williamson County? You bet. So the the analysis I have is really just based on occurrence, how often we've given it. So um, our this is interesting. Our protocol went into place May 14th of this year. Our first dose was May 8th of this year. Um, that was probably me giving an order to use it, but I decided not to look too hard into that. Um, basically, what we have found, we've given 314 doses to 256 unique patients for all indications. Um, the vast majority of those are one dose and you're done. The primary impressions, in other words, the reason we're using it, 21% is for psych patients. Uh, you can throw another 8% in for AMS, which I'm sure is actually psych. So about 30% for psych, 10% for nausea, um, another 10% for abdominal pain, which again is probably a surrogate for nausea, mm-hmm. um, and then 8% for headache. Um, we looked at the disposition because this came up with ketamine. You people are just giving ketamine so that you can facilitate a rest. Obviously that's not what's actually happening. Uh, Dr. Fernandez did a great job proving that. Uh, with their data set and so I wanted to look how often are we sedating patients and not transporting them and the answer is 0.4% of the time and that's almost certainly for a hospice patient with nausea. Um, The median dose we're giving is absolutely right in line with our protocols for agitation. It's five milligrams. Now remember that's a median. We for what we call resistant, those RAS of two to three, our protocol is for five milligrams repeated in 10 minutes. But for violent patients, we went with the dorm dose from Australia, and we do 10 milligrams IM repeated in uh, 10 minutes. So our medians were right in line with our protocols, five milligrams for agitation, two and a half for nausea, two and a half for headache. Um, Also took a look at, I have the impression from talking to my medics that they are trying to redose the drug sooner than is called for basically because of their frustration that it's not ketamine. And I would imagine we'll talk a little bit about um, the indications with ketamine and droperidol. Droperidol is a ketamine-saving drug, for example. But I looked at the median dose. The median dose is 12 minutes. So they're doing exactly what I've asked them to do. Kevin, how does that mirror our MCHD data that we have so far? We uh, rolled this out in August, so we only have a couple months. But uh, just like Jeff, we're seeing exactly what we had hoped to see. Tell the listeners a little bit about our specifics. Yeah, first off, uh, I'm a little jealous. Uh, Dr. Jarvis came way more prepared than I did, <laughs> which I shouldn't be surprised by. Um, so we, we didn't dig that deep into our data. So we know we have about 120, 130 uses total. Uh, we probably fall in line about 30% is for uh, agitation or psych. Uh, the rest is for nausea and vomiting. Um, looking at our data, you know, slightly higher female population, which kind of surprised me a little bit. Uh, and the, the age range is usually between 20 and 50 years of age. Um, had really good success with the nausea and vomiting patients. Um, it's relieved the, the nausea in about 85% of the patients total. Uh, and in the uh, psych patients, we've had positive experiences. And um, we 
in general, we've been very, very happy with the drug and, and our use so far. Like I said, we're you know significantly further behind you guys are as far as our data collection, number of patients. Um, but at some point, we'll do a deep dive and hopefully we can compare notes and uh, and look at data closer to that point. And Kevin, saved the big the big picture heavy hitter for you, Dr. Dixon. T- what's the bottom line for us as medical directors that we see as the most encouraging data point out of this out of this entire stack of of numbers. Right. It, thanks, Casey. It did exactly what we wanted it to do, and I expect what Dr. Jarvis wants it to do, uh, which is shift the needle back away from complete dissociative sedation in these patients that don't require it. It's if you, that's the only arrow you have in the quiver, then that's understandable for some. But a patient, in the way we like to describe the acutely agitated, dangerous patient that needs ketamine, either danger to themselves i.e. so sick that you've got to gain immediate control so you can assess the patient properly or a danger to other folks at the the first responders, providers, that's when you need ketamine. A patient that's in law enforcement custody in handcuffs on the ground with two burly sheriff's officers is not an immediate danger to the providers. Now, they may be an immediate danger to themselves requiring that there still may be a ketamine patient in there, but that is the perfect patient. For droperidol, guys, time is on our side. We no longer need a three to four minute dissociative medication. We Time's on our side. Wait them out. We've had great, great successes because if you can look at your really, really agitated patient population, there's a, it's a mixed bag of tricks, but at least somehow they have some psychosis. So they've got some disorganized delusional thinking uh, process now whether that's from a substance use disorder or that's a primary psychiatric disorder, it doesn't really matter. The droperidol has an is an excellent antipsychotic property, but we love it for its side effect, which is the sedative properties of it. So I think it's a it's a great add to the armamentarium, chart review wise. And I'd ask Jeff, you know what you've seen. Uh, Casey and I review 100% of these charts, uh, and kind of what I'm seeing is what. Time-wise, exactly what you're seeing is that we were we're so used to ketamine mm-hmm. that we're not waiting long enough. They're not waiting long enough. Uh, and the other one would be uh, just like I think the nausea vomiting part of it. I do see it given for headaches because mm-hmm. all of our headaches have nausea, nausea vomiting. vomiting. Absolutely. So, yeah, that's it's, it's a two birds thing. And that leads us right into lessons learned. I wanted to talk about some of the lessons we've all learned so far. Uh, those are probably our number one at MCHD is just if you expect ketamine, you're already off base because when we talked this and we talked about it, you know, I emailed Jeff before we did our CE and just said, hey, you know, what's some of the things you've learned? And that was the, the first line in the email was if you expect ketamine, you're going to be disappointed. And pharmacologically, you know, time of action wise, that's well known that droperidol is not as quick acting as ketamine. But in exchange for a few more minutes, you remove the hypersalivation, the uh, lorenzospasm, the other airway-related potential complications you can have with ketamine. Like the unexplicable urge for ER doctors to intubate patients that they wouldn't intubate if they'd given the ketamine themselves. You mean you don't intubate all your uh, shoulder dislocation and tongue wax? Dr. Jarvis, what are you talking about? Exactly. Other than time, though, what are some of the other lessons that y'all have learned at Wilco. You bet. So I want to, being the research nerd I am, there are a couple of research papers that I'd like to make reference to. One is exactly what you just talked about, uh, Dr. Patrick. When we're talking about 
um, this urge to intubate patients. So there was a, a meta-analysis done and it looked at the proportion of patients who got ketamine who were then intubated in the emergency department. 30% of patients were intubated in the ER when given ketamine by EMS, ground EMS. That number dropped to 6% when it was given by helicopter EMS and oddly enough, it was 1.4% when given by the ER doctor. So that is the thing that is just absolutely fascinating to me. Perhaps this is a function of lack of trust rather than anything else. Right, it's always perplexed me that you have a 29% difference yeah. in who gets intubated, uh, and these patients are so unstable that they need right. to be immediately intubated, but yet they were perfectly stable in the back of my truck for 20, 30, 40 minutes on full monitoring, on entitled. Would you like to see the entitled? I'll be happy to show you. It's, <laughs> right. Yeah, co completely normal. Well, yep. I think there's a secondary piece to that. My take on this group of literature, if you space it out, there's also... I feel like for providers who were trained and educated before ketamine existed, you know, if you look at those 2014, 2015, 2016, as time progresses, my take on, on that literature as a whole was that the, the intubation rates decreasing over yeah. time as well. I mean, there, I know there was a recent one, I, I think 2020 out of Indianapolis, that intubation rate was in the single digits. If you compare those back to the early Columbus study and some yeah. of the ones from Hennepin, they were higher. Honestly, I think it's just because the folks weren't familiar with ketamine and the idea of, you know, GCS of, of 3K or whatever you want to right. call it, just the fact that those are just sedated folks. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And was, with a lot of research, early trials show either incredibly good results or incredibly bad results, and then it turns out they're not reproducible. Um, yeah, we can pick nits about that 30% all day long, and Lord knows plenty of papers have been written about it. Um, just discussing a little bit of other literature, um, one of the reasons I'd like to think about droperidol is a ketamine-saving drug. And I think we're all familiar with what has been going on and is going on in Aurora, Colorado. Um, when I looked at that video, what we're seeing is ketamine given inappropriately. Um, now, I would like to think that would never happen in my system, never happen in your system, um, but I think we need to make sure it doesn't, and this is one of the reasons we do training. Um, as I started to um, push out training about how we can not be that guy, um, I said we really need an alternative. Ketamine is outstanding when you need rapid tranquilization, and as a matter of fact, there are a couple of papers out that are really good. One that hasn't even been indexed on PubMed yet. It's a systemic meta-analysis about ketamine and um, haloperidol use and droperidol use, and it turns out they work, they're fast, and they're safe. There is a randomized control trial called the RACT trial, um, awesome Canadian study where they randomized agitated patients to ketamine or haloperidol 5 and Versed 5, so a reasonable combination. And what they found is that on average, ketamine sedated, got control of the patient about eight minutes faster than the Haldol Versed group. And I think that's important to us because I was just listening to uh, you, Rob, talk about which patients are appropriate for ketamine. Those are the ones where those eight minutes makes a difference. But I think that's not the majority of our patients who still need sedation. 
droperidol is a great, great drug for that. Yeah, I couldn't agree more, Jeff. And I mean, the, the proof's in the pudding, and it's just a couple of months data from MCHD, but when we looked at it, it has in fact shifted the needle where you wanted it to go, where we yeah. wanted it to go, which was the most appropriate drug used in the right patient. And we went and looked at our droperidol use now, and now in our agitated spectrum patients, it went from 100% ketamine to about a third ketamine, yeah. and now we're two-thirds droperidol, which is, I think, right where we want to be. You know, so I heard you say that before we hit record, um, and what I'm hearing from that is we need to get our data together and publish this. And there are two questions. Does having another arrow in your quiver reduce the use of ketamine? Well, duh, yeah, it will. But then the follow-up question is, well, did you see um, did you have to redose more or look at adverse events? I think this would be a great paper for us. Couldn't agree more. Everybody's nodding down there, agree. but uh, yeah. didn't we have a pact not to take on more work here? This is supposed <laughs> to be a fun conference. Wait a minute, the Cowboy Game, guys, is starting I know, I know. in uh, in about four minutes. This here. work is already on the books. You <laughs> knew this one okay, was coming. I, it's on the board, guys. It, like is on it. The board. Like it. it is on the board. It is on the board. Well, you hit, you hit, you did say something we need to talk about, and that is adverse events. Yeah. And our adverse event rate. Yep. You, you've got them down there. What, what, what calculated were, uh, about 3.8%, and it's a mix, about 50-50, Jeff. Ecthesia, very well documented. All of them sorted with Benadryl administration. Yeah. So uh, ecthesia and the, the rest were dystonia, just mild dystonia. They all resolved uh, with Benadryl administration. The patient had no long-term adverse events. Did you happen to look, and that's, I would say, I haven't actually run the numbers in R on that. Um, my guess is that's about right. Um, did you were you able to tease out, or did you try to tease out whether there was a distinction between the dose and the route of administration? Not that granular okay. bit. Because I would imagine. No, good question. No, I think with our new EPR, we will be able to. Kevin, yeah, we, I'll let you get to that. But, that closely okay. but yeah, we, we can get more granular for sure. Yeah, because yeah. what I would expect to see is you would expect to see more echesthesia with IV. Because it's a faster drug, EIM, it gives you that kind of a little bit of a depot thing. Um, and then just more drug seems to give you more acesthesia. So I would expect that. Yeah. Before we move on from lessons learned, I want to talk about something that we, we didn't do at MCHD that we're actually going back and doing now is we didn't implement a RAS score mm. or any kind of sedation score up front. So uh, actively during CE, we're, we're teaching our yeah. crews that. That'll be implemented now. So. Uh, from a lesson learned perspective, if you're a service out there that, that doesn't have droperidol and you're thinking about adding it, I would strongly recommend it because, like Jarvis said, it kind of gives you a stratification for which patients need which level of sedation. It's a good starting place, yeah. um, and that's something we're working on now. I, I think it's also it's kind of like a pain score. It's good for research because any of us who have taken care of patients and documented there is a two-way street between what RAS score you determine and what drug you give. Um, one can influence the other. Um, but I do think it gives you a framework to, to help you decide when to use something. Um, and the other thing that comes out of looking at ketamine, and the RAS score is good regardless of the drug you're using. Um, so I, I really applaud y'all uh, your use of that. Looking at the stuff from Aurora, there are just so many things they did wrong there. Um, but if you can document the behavior of the patient, document a RAS score, document the things that you did to try and de-escalate, and then the interventions you do, I think you're going to be in a lot better shape. So 
good job for using a RAS. I'll promise everyone listening, I did not pay uh, Dr. Jarvis <laughs> to say the word framework, but I am in 110% agreement. If you're operating with a framework to start, it makes your decision-making more, uh, more consistent and it decreases the amount of variability that you have. I would also say that that initial RAS score is helpful. It gives you a, a starting point and organized way to think about it. And then you can monitor your progress. That five minute, 10 minute RAS score tells you if you're getting where you need to be or yeah. if you need to think about redosing. The other spot where we've seen a little bit of, uh, I guess, road bumps, so to speak, have been in the elderly patients, yeah. uh, paramedics, ER doctors, we all love having new toys and being able to play with new toys. We've seen a bit of probably overzealousness in uh, droperidol use in the elderly. Not that we can't use it in the elderly, just if we're going to, we really wanna make sure that we've uh, maybe maxed out our less sedating options, not combining droperidol with uh, narcotics if at all possible, and then starting with the lowest dose um, on, your, on your dosing scale, however that works out. Anything you wanna add there, Dr. Dixon? No, I mean, that covers it. Jeff, you, you see that in your QA too. I mean, the vast majority is, the, the good news is the vast majority are used for nausea bombing. They're using a very low dose. And actually, I haven't seen the side effects, I, the bad side effects I thought I would see and the complaints I thought I would feel from EDs going, what are you guys doing stowing this yeah. patient? Well, it's probably because they're just happy we didn't give them ketamine. <laughs> so what, what says, so I do have a question about that. Something that I struggle with with the elderly patients, particularly those with Parkinson's disease. Um, so when we were able to get droperidol, we did a one-to-one -one substitution for haloperidol. And um, my neurologist will lose their minds if I give a patient with Parkinson's haloperidol um, because of the whole dopaminergic impact. And if you look up the contraindications to droperidol, it's not listed there why it's not listed that why droperidol would not cause an issue and haloperidol would is beyond me um so i'm, I'm kind of curious whether y'all got any um feedback on that it's it's on my slide i must have looked at a different google search source than you because i ended up with parkinson's and parkinsonism on my contraindication slide honestly the honest answer is i just thought the incidence of yeah. a parkinson patient requiring droperidol would be so low that it, it made the it made the lecture slide and I left it at that this is going to be rare but you would probably want to consider another anti-emetic or another uh, anti-agitation medication i.e. benzo yeah. in a in a Parkinsonism patient. You know it's a, it's an interesting thing because all of these um, uh, recommendations come from neurologists who aren't seeing our patients and it comes from neurologists. I have no doubt if you take Haldol on an ongoing basis it's gonna muck, you're gonna have these Parkinson's patients who are gonna have some significant issues. I've yet to find one who can tell me about one dose. Right, um, they, yeah, you have to look at the, at the danger of the yeah. situation. What they, they don't understand that part of it right. in the pre-hospital setting that the episode that the medics got called out for, the patient's in a fairly fragile, dangerous area to begin yeah. with, or we wouldn't be there sedating the patient. Exactly. What is the risk of that not getting yeah. the best medication versus one dose of a, a dopaminergic yeah. drug and there's some there's some variations there on parkinson's you know true parkinson's and when you get into lewy body dementia yeah. and, and other parkinsonism type disorders that can occur in younger folks I, I would say for the older parkinson population kind of the ones that we all think about if we're agitated and you know difficult 
in MCHD setting, I'd probably want to go more towards the anxiety yeah. midazolam dose, which in when our service is 0 0.02 milligrams per kilogram and be really gentle in the elderly folks. And if it's a nausea vomiting patient, probably lean towards on Dancitron. If you were in one of the younger groups that was potentially more more violent, more yeah. agitated that needed, you know, that, that higher RAS score that needed something stronger, I would probably err on the side of, of benzodiazepines in that patient uh, if, if, if necessary would be my general thought just as a, you know, from a physician standpoint. I don't know that that's written clearly in our protocols. I think it's rare enough where we can deal with those on, on the one-off sort of basis, um, but that would be my thoughts on the, on the Parkinson. I think you made a really good point about the patient age. Um, I think it's important that we remember not all the tremors is Parkinson's. Absolutely. There are yeah, withdrawal. Perhaps that's, that's exactly what <laughs> I was Something else that you get benzos. <laughs> well, your, your GABA agonist, your GABA receptors are not adequately covered anymore. And that's a good lead in. I want to, before we wrap up, I do want to bring up another sort of lesson learned. And this is uh, straight out of chart review. And we've just, you know, new tool, new toy. Let's use it. We've seen a couple instances with, within MCHD of, of patients that were, in alcohol withdrawal, alcohol withdrawal seizure, just seizure with post-ictal agitation, there are still a couple situations where benzodiazepines are 100% first line regardless of timing, and that's alcohol withdrawal, that's seizure disorder, that's alcohol withdrawal with seizures. <laughs> uh, also, I'd probably add to that list, you know, the true known sympathomimetic folks, you know, benzos are, yeah. are sort of the drug of choice of the toxicologists out there. So there are still some folks, you know, they were agitated and they had just seized. Well, they may seize again. Let's let's yeah. go with midazolam instead of droperidol in those situations. You know, and especially if they're tachycardic, hypertensive, and, you know, their last drink was 12, 24, 36 hours ago. Give them all the midazolam you yep. can you can load Re them up with and call me and I'll tell you to give more. And request another truck for yeah. to reload your Reload benzos. all the benzos you need because those are some of the sickest folks you can ever take care of. I'm sensitive to those. So just talking about alcohol, because I, I want to make sure everybody's clear about this, alcohol, not having enough alcohol, benzo's the answer. Too much alcohol, droperidol is the answer. And our Australian colleagues are really good at too much alcohol, um, and they love them some droperidol. It works great for those folks. Yeah, there's a, we'll link that one in the show notes. That's one of the ones we used in our CE, looking at midazolam versus yep. uh, droperidol, and, and their population was primarily drunk, uh, drunk patients, yep. and droperidol was quicker. It was less uh, side effect inducing, and that was one that we really based our protocol on. So we'll link that one also. Love me some dorm. Yep. Anything else you want to add, Kevin, before we wrap up? Uh, no, I mean, I would just say that, you know, if you're thinking about adding droperidol, with, with any change you add, like clearly there's a lot of lessons we've learned through the last several months, and I know Jarvis has as well. So make sure you have a close eye on it. You have a good, strong QI process to look at the background and then refine over time, which is kind of what we're doing today, right? Yeah, they treat these folks like sedated patients. They need full monitoring post-sedation. They need an in, you know, entitle, need, need a temp. They need blood glucose. They need a 12-lead afterwards, you know, just like you would any ketamine patient or any, you know, 10-milligram IM Versed patient. It's not a, it's not a set it and forget it. We've, we've decided to sedate this person because they're agitated and dangerous. It means we have to look over them closely. And going back to Aurora, that's, that's part of the big problem there. You know, the yeah. ketamine played a role. It was an ancillary piece of that puzzle. But if you sedate anyone, then you're responsible for their positioning. You're responsible for their monitoring, their oxygenation, their ventilation. And we have to monitor that. And we've got great tools with which to do that. 
Take responsibility of your patient and keep close watch. Anything you want to add down there on the far right side, y'all? That says it all. Thank you, Dr. Jarvis, for joining us. We are going to now hit the Cowboys game. Hopefully haven't missed too much of the first half. Uh, thanks, everybody, for listening. As always, if you have ideas for future podcasts, please send us an email at the podcast email, podcast at mchd-tx.org. Leave us a like or a listen, a five-star review wherever you listen to your podcast. If you think you want to leave a, leave a four-star review, don't do it. It'll hurt <laughs> Kevin's feelings. He's sensitive. Dr. Dixon down there is really sensitive. I personally have thicker skin, so it's not as big a deal to me, but I do like five-star reviews as well. You really wouldn't want to make Dr. Dixon drink, would you? No, <laughs> no. You want to push him over the edge. He's a, he's he's a, a sensitive type, yeah, I can he, tell. He's, he's edgy enough as is. Anyhow, thanks, so everybody, for listening. We'll be back again with a new episode soon. This podcast was brought to you by the Montgomery County Hospital District, Texas. Production and editing by Andrew Adams. Questions or comments, which are always welcome, can be sent to podcast at mchd-tx.org. Make sure to subscribe above to keep updated to all our future casts. Music, copyright, Kevin McLeod, and Competech.com. Licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0.